Well, welcome listeners. Uh, we're here with Religion Unplugged's podcast. I'm Paul Gladder, executive editor of Religion Unplugged. We're here in sunny Southern California in Orange County, and um, we're at the Orange County Rescue Mission today, and we're with a gentleman named Fernando Arroyo. And, you know, the backdrop, it's Monday morning um, in August, and our troops are pulling out of Afghanistan. And we are seeing images on Twitter this morning of people trying to climb on airplanes, desperate trying to get out of, out of that country. And there's going to be a lot of questions in coming days about, you know, looking back on that era in, in the Middle East and the time spent, the money spent, the soldiers' lives that we, we put in harm's way. Uh, uh, so we're here to talk with Fernando today. Fernando is a veteran of the U.S. military, and I think the story in Afghanistan today uh, going on in the world uh, relates to people. And so I'm, I'm excited to talk to Fernando about his life. Fernando, why don't you, before we hear your story, could you tell us uh, what your role is here at the rescue mission? Yeah, so uh, my name's Fernando Arroyo and I'm the veteran services case manager at the Orange County Rescue Mission. So as a case manager here at the rescue mission, for the veterans. I help veterans transitioning out of homelessness who are dealing with um, overcoming PTSD, drug addiction, and various other problems, and uh, even helping college and working veterans who need affordable housing. I'm like, uh, as a case manager there, and I get to hear their stories and really just meet them where they are get to find out what, what led them to homelessness or uh, if they're college and working veterans, um, just to hear their stories and um, whatever help they need. If they just need someone to talk to, if they need prayer, if they need counseling, I'm here to help them, offer them that. And um, it's really amazing and uh, a rewarding career. Yeah, well, we want to hear more about that, some of the dynamics of that kind of work. But we also want to hear first, I think, your story, which relates to a book that you're writing, right? Why don't you tell us about the title of the book, uh, why you started to write it, and then we'll start to ask you about your story. Yeah, so the title of the book is The Shadow of Death, From My Battles in Fallujah to the Battle for My Soul. And it's set to come out in uh, March or April of this coming year, next year. Um, the reason I, I decided to write this because it's really the story, it's my testimony. Going through, like so many veterans who after 9-11 um, raised their right hand and said, you know, I, I swear to defend this nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And going through military training, uh, I was in the airborne infantry and to go to Iraq and then Afghanistan and then Iraq again um, and then to to come back and to have experienced that brotherhood, that camaraderie in the military, to then getting out and just being all alone, not being able to find a community and really reaching a point of, um, you know, questioning whether my life was worth living. And so many veterans have experienced that. More veterans have died from suicide than in combat, which is just a shame. The point of me sharing my story is to let veterans know that there is hope. I want veterans out there to know that they're not alone. I want veterans to know that there is hope and that their life is definitely worth living. Mm. Yeah, so I, I grew up in the city of Bell Gardens and it's um, like 15 minutes east of East LA, small city. 
Uh, you know, I didn't have much growing up. Lived in a one-bedroom house, family of four. My brother and I slept on the living room floor, and um, but we were we were happy. I had a good childhood. My parents were loving parents, and um, like many young boys, I was playing with you know toy guns and GI Joes and things like that. And um, I remember I was about five or six years old, and I watched Operation Desert Storm on TV, and I thought, man, that's so cool watching these guys. Um, with rifles or M16s and camouflage and um, fighting against an evil tyrant, Saddam Hussein, and um, charging towards the gunfire. I thought, that's so awesome. I would want to be one of them. And as I grew up, um, you know, whatever I learned in school, whatever career fields were available and all the options and uh, jobs that, that were presented to me, um, Nothing was more important to me than than to serve in the, in the armed forces, and I made the decision to join the army. Um, I had never been on an airplane before, never left the country before, or to, went to another state for that matter. On September 11, 2001, I was at in, in high school. I was a senior at Bell Gardens High School, and I remember my friend told me that um, that there were some explosions at the World Trade Center. Uh, he just saw it on the news as he was leaving to go to school. And I didn't think anything of it. But when I got to my second class that day, uh, the teacher had his TV uh, set out and all the students from the previous class, they weren't leaving. Everyone was just, you know, uh, focused on the, on the TV screen and what was happening. Then the second plane hit and I thought, what is happening? Like everyone else, I, w- I wondered who is doing this. Later that day, I heard of al-Qaeda, I heard of the Taliban, Osama bin Laden's name started being thrown out there, that they're in Afghanistan, and that's where it was all done, in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, I wanted to join the military as a kid, and now I was at the age where I could as a senior in high school. So I talked to the Army recruiter, and I remember telling him that I wanted to be a paratrooper, I want to be in the Airborne Infantry. And he laughed. Him and the other recruiters laughed and they were like, okay, calm down. Like, you want to be a war hero, easy guy. Uh, they said, do you know what that is? I said, yeah, you parachute out of planes and fight. And they're like, yeah, but it's not nice. You're going to be in battle. You're going to be in the rain, in the snow, in the mud. It's not a pretty job. I said, yeah, but that sounds cool. I want to do it. So he offered me, the recruiter said, look, check this out. I can give you $20,000 bonus, $20,000 sign-up bonus to be a cook in the army. And I just couldn't do it. I was like, no, no, no. All my life I wanted to join and I want to fight. So I turned down $20,000, joined Airborne Infantry, 82nd Airborne. I didn't know this till years later. My dad did not want to sign. He was afraid that if I were to go to war and, and something were to happen to me, that my blood would be on his hands. My mom told him, you know, he's going to join. He could just wait till he's 18 after he graduates and join himself. At least right now he knows that we're supporting him. September 11 happened yeah. and September 29 I had signed up. So just wow. yeah, so. What, three weeks after September 11, I was scared. I remember getting on an airplane and when the airplane was taking off, it's kind of shaky. And, you know, later I learned like that's just normal. I'm used to flying now. But my first time on an airplane was to go to train to fly over to across the nation to train to parachute out of an airplane into war. And I regretted joining that moment. I thought, oh, this is so stupid. I'm looking out the window thinking, I, I can't do this. This is, I signed up for something greater than, than what I can do. I bit off more than I could chew. The recruiter was right. I should have listened to him. 
there was a lawyer sitting next to me. We talked for a bit. He saw I was nervous, and he can tell I'm, you know, I'm a kid. I'm I just turned 18, and it turns out that um, he's a Christian. I'm a Christian, and he's a veteran, and he was a paratrooper. And he told me, you will not regret this decision and God is with you. And I thought, wow, to be infantry is not an easy job. You're trained to, the bottom line is we're trained to shoot, move, communicate, and kill. So I get to Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, Sand Hill, Hell's Kitchen, Alpha 150. And uh, it was just immediate, uh, just like a reality check. Uh, you're tested. You're tested physically, mentally, and spiritually. Um all the running, the push-ups, the the getting yelled at, the learning weapons and learning um, just being in, really it's an indoctrination into a world of war fighting and being molded and transformed into it's no longer about me, it's no longer about how I matter and what I want, like so many Americans think. It's about the team. It's about each other, and you learn that you're only as strong as your weakest link. And I made it. I made it through 14 weeks of infantry school. And um, then it was off to airborne school. And we hopped in a van and the drill sergeant drove us there. And he said, hey, good luck and dropped us off. Um, Fallujah is where I got my first taste of combat. It was intense. Um, CNN was there. All the news people were there. Fox News, everybody. It was just a hot spot. It was the triangle of death. It's called the Sunni triangle, triangle of death. Fallujah was at the center. It was, uh, at the time, considered the most dangerous city in Iraq. Um, later, um, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, uh, the most wanted terrorist in the world, more wanted than Osama bin Laden for the horrible things he did, the beheadings and all that. He was there. And um, my first taste of combat was uh, the nighttime patrol in Fallujah where we were going to do what's called a movement to contact. And basically, that's a fancy way of saying search and destroy. So we were going to go into the city, drive up and down the streets, and kind of just put ourselves out there. So like, hey, bad guys, we're here. Come and fight. Before we went out of the base, I could see bullets being, you know, bullets flying into the sky, glowing red uh, tracer rounds and green tracer rounds. And we intercepted radio communications and the insurgents. Um, these guys were um, on their phones and radios saying, you know, when the Americans come in the city, we're going to kill them. And... They were challenging us to a fight. So we went into the city. As soon as we got into the city, all the shooting stopped. There was no one on the streets, so we knew we were being watched and that there's something bad was going to happen. We drove around the city. I got glimpses of guys with cell phones in alleys. I knew they were spotters, but there was nothing we can do to them. Um, they just had cell phones. So we finally made it to the outskirts of the city. Uh, I'm not sure if it was the Tigris or Euphrates River. I think it was Euphrates River. And it's a swampy area. And then that's when I heard two explosions, loud booms that shook me from the inside. I watched two red, glowing, glowing red rockets, RPGs, rocket propelled grenades, fly five feet over my head. They blew up behind me. This all happens in seconds. Bullets start flying. I start shooting back. It was an out of body experience. Uh, I have night vision on. I'm using my Pac 4 infrared laser to shoot at the muzzle flashes I see in the tall uh, grass. At the same time, we're trying to get out of that kill zone where the ambush is taking place. We're trying to drive out of there. Uh, next to me, to my left, is Sergeant First Class Lopez. And to my right was Corporal McGuire, my team leader. Corporal uh, McGuire was shooting his M203 grenade launcher. 
and he said, hey, there's a guy running with an AK. And I saw the guy running with his AK. I put my Pac-4 infrared laser on his chest. I opened fire and I watched him. I watched the bullets go through him and then he just fell into the swampy grass and kind of just got swallowed up by the earth. Um, and ceasefire is called. It was over. Um, I didn't feel anything. What I did didn't hit me that I just shot a human being. I, I, didn't, I didn't think about it until the next day when we, we were given orders that we were going to go back in the daytime to that same spot. And that's when my brain was saying, don't go, it's dangerous, you're going to die. But I had to face that. And as the deployment went on, that's really what war is. It's a scary situation and you just learn to live with the adrenaline and fear. And leaving Fallujah, coming back home, that's when I started to see uh, the effects of combat on, on my, my mind. Um, when you get back from war, you turn in your weapon, your night vision, your gear, you know, all that stuff is put away in the arms room. But I'm, I was so used to having it. I was so used to sleeping next, you know, having it next to me within arm's reach. One day it was, it was, uh, it was trash day and I'm at my parents' home, right? I'm, I'm at Bell Gardens. I'm watching TV with my family. It's trash day. There's a garbage truck, uh, pick, uh, this garbage truck picked up a dumpster. And when they lift up that dumpster, they shake it at the end to get all the trash out. So it's, it's a loud boom. Well, when that boom happened, I dove to the living room floor. I yelled, incoming, get down, get down. And uh, six months later, I was back at war. And we got the call to go to Afghanistan. At the time, had the Taliban had been defeated. Al-Qaeda was on the run. Um, and now the people were going to vote. They were going to vote for the president of their choosing. And the Taliban was threatening that they were going to uh, kill and bomb anyone who, who voted. And these, vote, these polling sites, they were going to destroy them with suicide vests, suicide car bombs, all that. So we got the call. I went to Afghanistan. Um, we did missions, counter IED missions. We did sniper overwatch missions, watching these polling sites to make sure they weren't being booby trapped. Um, we did a few raids to kill or capture high value targets. We were out there with a, 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 a operational detachment alpha team of the third special forces group or what's called an A team of the Green Berets and in this remote camp in Zermatt, Afghanistan. And we were doing missions between Zermatt and Gardez, Afghanistan, uh, along the Pakistan border, um, making sure that the elections in our area were gonna go smoothly. And, and they did, they went smoothly, the people voted, uh, and then we, we came back home. Again, when I came back, again, waking up at night, looking for my weapon, it's not there, uh, thinking I'm, um, you know, when someone slams a door, I, I thought it was a mortar or an IED explosion and I'm, I'm, my heart, you know, I'm jumping and I'm, uh, uh, things were getting worse. Mm -hmm. And um, my family started noticing it more. My girlfriend at the time started noticing it more. I was more withdrawn when I came back from ranger school. So the army said, we we're going back to Iraq. It's going to be for a year and we need the manpower so you can't we can't afford to lose you, so you're you're staying. 
I was kicked out of the recon platoon because I didn't want to re-enlist because my plans were to get out and get married. This girl I was dating, um, she said, I, I am sorry, I can't do another deployment. You're going to be gone for a year. So she broke it off with me. So I was heartbroken. I was, I was pretty angry. The only time I would really pray was when I was going to go outside the wire, which is leaving the base to go on missions, on combat operations. I wasn't going to church, you know. If I ever encountered the, uh, our chaplain, maybe it was a brief encounter, but I wasn't, I, I blamed God for it. And it's, you know, now looking back, it's like, well, how can I blame God for it if I wasn't even in, in relationship with God? You know, I was, I had straight away. I would pray every now and then. I mean, when I was mad at him, I blamed him for getting stop loss. I blamed him for uh, the girl leaving me. I blamed him for being kicked out of the scout platoon. Then I went to war. So the one-year deployment turned into a 15-month deployment. This was uh, during the surge in 2006 and 2007. That 15-month deployment, I lost several friends, close friends. Um, A lot of my friends were wounded and this car bomb, this suicide car bomber drove his car bomb into an Iraqi police station, demolished it. 19 Iraqi policemen were dead. They were killed. Behind that Iraqi police station, there were concrete barriers, but the blast wave went into the build, the building behind that concrete barrier. And that's where Charlie Company was staying. And these guys all had concussions. They were blown out of their beds. They were messed up. After that car bomb exploded, 20 insurgents stormed into that, that perimeter and they were going to kill all of the Americans and take over that, that, that base. So we had to go and take it back. Um, we were taking sniper fire. We saw, I saw, I remember there was a crater the size of a Volkswagen Beetle in the front of the, where the Iraqi police station used to stand. We parked our Humvees, four Humvees, uh, where the concrete wall once was. I got out. I stood over the rubble that, was a pol- that used to be a police station. It, it, it was terrible. Terrible to watch people just torn apart. The death and destruction I saw that day. My buddy Sullivan comes out. I said, hey, Sully, are you okay? He's got a bloody nose. He's in combat gear. And his words were, I just killed 20 insurgents and I'm going to go play with their bodies later. That's what he said. I come back from that deployment after 15 months. So at this time, I've been in combat for over two years of my life, and this is where we get into the next act. Yeah. Are you uh, still in the military at that point? Do you get out because the stop loss ends, or do you, are you just kind of having a break after that deployment? But tell us what happens in, in the next phase. So I get back from, from a 15-month deployment in Iraq, and it's October 27, 2007. I take a, a two-week vacation. And then I'm giving or I'm given orders sometime in November, so a few weeks after coming back, telling me that I have 10 days to get out of the army. Thank you for you know not even a thank you. It's just attention to orders. United Department of the United States Army to Sergeant Fernando Arroyo, last four my social security number. You have 10 days starting from this date to be out by this date. And that's it. Like, that's goodbye. You know, that you have 10 days, 10 days to set up medical appointments, to do medical screening, to turn in my equipment, to make sure that the army knows that I'm getting out and to get, it all ends with getting a piece of paper that is called a DD-214. And that is the only proof that I served. 
it says what I did, where I was. It has all that information for employers in the future, or, you know, for my own records. And they told me, thank you for your service. Uh, here's a piece of paper, the DD-214. Make sure you make a lot of copies of that because that's the only evidence that you served. Hmm. And that was it. And a few weeks later, I was in college. And still, I mean, th this is four years that I never dealt with any of this. Till finally, um, my goal was to be in law enforcement, but uh, I couldn't lie. They ask a lot of questions, very thorough background checks. And I admitted to carrying a gun, a concealed pistol, which is a felony in California without a concealed carry permit. With my war experiences and that, they thought that I was not a fit for law enforcement. So I find myself working at a Costco uh, in the city of Commerce, and I'm a shopping cart collector because I ran out of the GI Bill, and that's what I was living off of, and I'm not in school, so now I need to get a job, and I'm collecting shopping carts. And I remember just feeling like a failure, not having a, a brotherhood, not having a circle. I was going to church. You know, I did, I did start going to church after the Army, um, but I was afraid that if I shared what I did in combat with church people, cause they're good people. And I had this, this idea in my head that they're all so, you know, people are generous, like, Christians are so good or whatever and innocent that if I shared what I did in war, that they would kick me out of church, that they would say, you're not a Christian. How dare you, you, how dare you, you know, hurt human beings and so I, I carried around a lot of shame and guilt of my service. Um, so I wasn't opening up to the church. I wasn't happy in my, my, my job collecting carts at Costco. Um, then that, that's when the nightmares hit a, an all-time high where it got to the point I was afraid of going to sleep. And I'd wake up and point my pistol and look at my house or looked around thinking maybe somebody's in my house right now. They're trying to kill me. And... So I was losing sleep. I was, I was miserable. I hated my life. And that's when I reached the low point of my life. And I thought, I think that the best days of my life are behind me. I don't have, uh, I don't have brothers. I, I, I'm alone. I, I'm a failure. I'm just a shopping cart collector. I think it's time for me to check out. And I remember, I remember putting the pistol in my mouth. I heard the click of the safety being deactivated. And in my mind, I, I, I said a prayer in my mind and I said, God, if you're there, save me. And then I remember hearing a boom. And then I, I opened my eyes and I dropped the pistol and I was scared. My heart was racing. I, was, I started tearing up crying. And I look and uh, my Bible fell off my desk and I was scared. And I remember I prayed and I asked God for forgiveness. And I prayed and I, I cried and I said, I give up because my pride, my pride was killing me. And then finally reaching that low point and admitting that I needed help and that I couldn't live my life without God. So after that low place, my buddy, uh, Luis España, I knew him from high school and he, he works for the Department of Veterans Affairs and his job is to get veterans connected with help. And after breaking down, he, and I believe it was God's timing. I mean, he happened to reach out to me again. He never gave up on me. First, the receptionist gave me a packet to fill out. And it had all these questions of, 
Have I seen war? Did I ever hurt anyone in combat? Did I lose friends in combat? Was I having nightmares? How often? And I lied. Everything's great. I don't drink. I don't have nightmares. Bob comes out, call, you know, says, come on with me, go to his office. It's me and him. He closes the door. He pulls out my, mil he has my military records, my, my DD-214. And he says, you, you were awarded the combat infantryman badge, ranger tab. You've been to Iraq twice, Afghanistan once. I think you're lying. And I didn't say anything. And, and he says, I'm here to help you. Even if you've committed murder, that stays between us. I am here to help you. And I, I was thinking, do I get up and just run out of there? I've been having suicidal ideations. This was it. Either I surrender and get help or I walk away. That was, that was the point where from then on, I was open and honest. And I, I met with Bob twice a week and I shared and he helped me to process the trauma, the loss and to put everything in perspective of, of the pain and suffering that I experienced. So many veterans do this. They reject community because they, they feel that if they share what they've experienced, that they're going to be shunned, that they're going to be ridiculed, that they're going to be castaways, ca you know, cast out. That is not the truth. And knowing that I'm forgiven by God, knowing that I have a community was so freeing. And I didn't know who I was going to help. I wasn't sure. At Biola University, there wasn't much for veterans when I got there. There was no veteran center like UC Irvine had. And it was difficult to find out who's a veteran and invite them. And it started off with having maybe like a monthly like barbecue where like maybe eight to 12 veterans would meet to then creating the Biola Veterans Association, being recognized by the president of the university, Dr. Barry Corey. Once the Biola Veterans Association was created, more and more veterans started joining. Um, I was the vice president of communications. So I was just finding out um, who's a veteran, connecting with them face to face and making sure that they were plugging into the bio with other veterans and doing that. I got to hear their stories and I got to pray with them and counsel them. And a lot of these guys were fresh from overseas. And I would tell them I went through that stuff. I went through the same thing. And just to be able to go there and connect and have that camaraderie once more and have that fellowship that, that we're so used to as, as military servicemen and women, um, it really creates a safe environment to be able to, to share some of these stories that maybe some people would cringe at because they don't know what war is like and to know that you're not alone. The time came, I graduated. It was time for me to move on from Biola. And it's at Biola that I met my buddy, Joey DeLuca. And he got a job at the Orange County Rescue Mission. And Joey reached out to me a week after I graduated seminary. So the Orange County Rescue Mission recognized that veterans are, we're different. We have a certain lingo, a certain experience. We, um, we do things differently in a military way. And in order to help veterans, uh, Jim Palmer, he thought, you know what, we need to create a community of veterans, just like these universities are recognizing, just like Biola recognized, where veterans can click and can share in their experiences. And because of the flow of veterans into the rescue mission, um, they opened the Tustin Veterans Outpost to provide housing for these veterans, to create that community. 
So, so for listeners who don't know much about the Orange County Rescue Mission, as I understand it, there's 12 different facilities, and we're sitting at this one right now called the Village of Hope, which is incredible. But maybe just put like a couple of sentences of context of the of the outpost and how it fits with broader operation here. Yeah. So the uh, Orange County Rescue Mission has several campuses. the The Village of Hope is for uh, people transitioning out of homelessness, out of jail or prison. And it's a back-to-work program. And here they work on themselves. We believe it's not about just providing someone a house. It's, it's the rehabilitation process. You have to, what, what led you to homelessness? What led you to prison? Let's provide therapy and, and counseling so that you can overcome that and find a job and live a ha- happy and healthy, successful life. So that's the Village of Hope. The Tustin Veterans Outpost is where the veterans live. We have three categories of veterans. We have transitional veterans who are veterans coming out of homelessness, drug addiction, um, jail, prison. They, they got out of the military, whether they suffered from PTSD and fell into hard times. They're now able to come to this community of veterans. They live at the Tustin Veterans Outpost with veterans. And every, every morning, they're transported to the Village of Hope where they have different uh, duties. They either work in the kitchen, the warehouse, but they're receiving counseling. They're, they're receiving, um, they're, they're hearing the word of God. They're, you know, working on those things that cause them to, to fail, to fall apart. So that's transitional veterans. Then we have college veterans. We provide affordable housing to full-time college enrolled veterans who are on the GI Bill or VOC rehabilitation. Um, they can apply for our program and have this housing and have access to the counseling and to all the resources of the Village of Hope. Two kind of wrap-up questions. It's, I mean, you know, people are I'm already hearing questions like, is this embarrassing for the America? Is this, did, was this a waste of people's time? Um, if, with all this kind of conversation out there, do you regret the time? If someone asks you, you know, was it worth it? I think that we gave the Afghan people the opportunity to be a a self-sufficient nation, to experience freedom, to be free of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and and these oppressive uh, terror organizations. Looking back, I know that what I did, especially the mission I had when I went to Afghanistan to provide security, so that the people could vote for the first time in who knows how many years since the removal of the Taliban to be able to make a decision in who they want to be the leaders of their nation. That was noble. I do not regret that. For a long time now in Afghanistan, since we were there, um, women's rights, you know, have dramatically changed for the better. What, what's happening right now is at some point, yes, we did have to get out of Afghanistan, but I believe it could have been done better. Not just this rapid withdrawal so quick. I wouldn't be surprised if they feel like we just turned their backs, our backs on them. But my prayer for them is that they would understand that, yes, they, they know this fear they have of the Taliban, that their freedom is going to be taken away. And I pray that they would pick up arms, that that's my opinion as a veteran, and fight for their freedom, fight for their country. And that Afghanistan would be a better nation because the people of Afghanistan make it a better nation. 
Um, so what, what do you hope your book accomplishes and what do you hope your message, you know, accomplishes to, uh, you know, to the men and women who served over there and to those of us who didn't, but um, uh, maybe in a position to uh, be helpful to, to them? I don't want veterans to get out and believe that they're alone because the truth is they're not. And I want them to find love in Christ and find community. That's the main goal that I have. Great. Um, well, so people watching for your book now, can they go to a website? How can they connect with you if, uh, if they want to? Fidelis Books is the publisher. As, as time goes forward, that's when uh, the publisher is going to start announcing this, uh, the coming out of the book, and um, start putting it out there. And I want as many veterans and their families to get a hold of it so that they, so it's not just for veterans because I want also ve uh, the, their families to know what their sons and daughters have gone through and how to be there for them. Mm. So, Awesome. Thanks so much for telling us your story today and good luck with finishing up the book, Fernando. All right, thank you. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by executive editor Paul Gladder, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag. Thank you.